are listening to Estate at the Union, estate planning made simple. Here's your host, Brad Wewell, from Texas Trust Law in Austin, Texas. Hi, this is Brad Wewell. We are here with the Estate of the Union podcast. And with our podcast, we try to delve into different aspects of the law. Sometimes we'll bring in a charity and find out what they do. Sometimes we'll bring in very important public office holders and share what they do. And today we have a very special guest, and we are very thankful to have uh, Judge Sharon Keller. And Judge Keller is the presiding judge of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. And everybody's heard about the Texas Supreme Court, but the Court of Criminal Appeals is a court of equal weight. And I'll share this, Sharon, the Supreme Court of Texas doesn't hear any criminal cases. They just hear lawsuits and things that come from lawsuits. And the Court of Criminal Appeals only hears criminal cases. So these are the, again, the death penalty cases, the things that really matter, the rubber meets the road of the law. When people think of the law, they typically think of criminal law. So Sharon is the presiding judge. She's the chief judge of this court. And Sharon, thanks for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Appreciate you coming. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, Tell us um, what the court does in more detail. Okay. Um, as you said, the court has criminal jurisdiction and the Supreme Court doesn't. Right. So all criminal cases come to us from the misdemeanors on up to the death penalty. Okay. We generally have three areas of cases that come to us. Uh, we have post-conviction writs of habeas corpus and felony cases. And those are typically an inmate files a pro se application from the prison, sends it to us challenging his the jurisdiction of the court to convict him or raising a constitutional challenge to his conviction. Let's stop there. Okay. We need to interpret. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. When somebody does something pro se, that means they do it on their own without a lawyer. Right. They're sitting in jail. They'll like sitting in jail. And maybe sitting in jail for like 30, 40 life sentence, right? Right. And they can write something to the court? They do. Okay. Tell me more about that. That's called a writ of habeas corpus? That's a writ of habeas corpus. Okay. There you go. And um, that is the biggest part of our docket. We have, it's lower now for a variety of reasons, but there was a time where we would get about 8,000 of those a year. 8,000 8,000. And these are, <laughs> I think that was because of the prison expansion program. The prisons used to hold about 30,000 people across the state. Right. There wasn't enough room, and there was an expansion in the mid-90s, and now they hold 150,000. So wow. once the prisons started getting bigger, we started getting more Yeah, more people petitions. to file right. more uh, uh, petitions, right. Right. Interesting. 150,000. 150,000. That's a lot of people. It is a lot, a lot of, of bad inmates. people. It is. Yeah, for sure. So we also get um, petitions from the intermediate courts. There are 14 courts around the state that handle direct appeals from convictions. And if someone, uh, an inmate, goes to the court of, gets convicted, goes to the court of appeals and doesn't get the relief he wants, he or the state right. can file a petition for discretionary review with us. Okay. And we don't have to accept those. Most of them we don't. We grant review on about 7% of those. Okay. And those are in some ways the most interesting cases because the ones we grant review on, typically there's an issue of um, statutory interpretation, interpretation okay. or the courts of appeals have decided something differently from court to court and mm -hmm. we want to resolve it. 
And those are probably the most interesting, but probably the most time-consuming are the death penalty cases. I would imagine. Yeah, we don't get a lot of them. We get about 10 a year now. And direct, they come to us on direct appeal. They don't go through the 14 intermediate courts. Okay. If someone is convicted and sentenced to death in the trial court, the appeal comes directly to us. And you have to take it? We do. All right. And there have been times where an inmate wanted to waive his appeal, wanted to go ahead and get executed, and we don't do that. Mm -hmm. We look at the record ourselves and decide what issues there might be and whether he might get relief. So those are time consuming, but the more time consuming are the death penalty habeas writs. Okay, so let's, let's stop here. Okay. Uh, we're gonna break this up. Um, because you're a lawyer and I'm a lawyer, um, but you're probably not a lawyer. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna step back and walk through this again, and then we'll get to the habeas, death penalty habeases. Okay. It's, it's such fascinating stuff. So um, to put it in context, there are three levels of courts in Texas. There is a trial level. Now the trial level is gonna be one of two types of courts. There could be a district court or it could be a county court of law. If you're convicted there, you can appeal to, as you said, an intermediate court, and there are 14 of those. Austin has one, Houston has two, Dallas has one, Fort Worth has one, 14 around the state. If they lose there, then they come to you. Right. Okay, okay, okay. And But the death penalty cases go straight from the district court because only district courts can do death penalty cases, and they come straight to you guys. That's right. Okay, wow. Those are hard cases. I'm sure they're hard cases. They are hard cases. Um, the death penalty writs tend to be very long. People file long pleadings, and they raise things that were not raised on direct appeal. Why not? They want to, um, when you're on habeas, you can add to the record. You now, again, these are witnesses. guys sitting in jail. Right. All right, so they've already been convicted. Right. And they're sitting around looking for something to do because they don't want to get executed. Right. Right? Okay. And they've already been convicted and appealed to you and you said, no, thanks, you're going to be executed. Right. But they're sitting around on death row, got a pad of paper, start writing. Right. Okay. Well, no, actually, they get a lawyer. Oh, they so do? The, okay. On death penalty cases for the, their first writ of habeas corpus, the, there's a statute that entitles them to counsel. Okay. All right. All so right. they have lawyers, and the lawyers want to... They will allege things that didn't come up in the trial or they fill out the record and they say, for instance, um, my lawyer was ineffective okay. because this was going on and he didn't tell me about it or he failed to object when he should have mm -hmm. and if he had objected I would have gotten a new trial. Had an alcohol problem, had health problems, right. was lazy. Things that don't show up in the record of the trial, sure. okay. they go out and get affidavits okay. from people okay. to swear to things that would challenge the constitutionality of the conviction. Okay, all right, mm -hmm. all right. And you get a lot of those. We do, and they're very, uh, very long, as I said, and very time consuming. Mm -hmm. And there are some really good lawyers working on death penalty hmm. habeas cases. Hmm. 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 And so you have to give it another look. We do. Okay. And that's we spend. That's why I'm saying those are probably the most time-consuming because they're long records, and um, you know they raise good issues. You just do a lot of reading. I do. I <laughs> Holy do a cow. lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> my eyes have gotten really bad. <laughs> I just had my eyes done, by the way, okay. and uh, cataracts are gone, and I've got these cool little lenses that mm -hmm. I can. I feel like a bionic guy a little bit. Yeah. So if you need some help with that, let me know. I'll, okay. I'll get a referral, but. Uh, 
Wow. And then, um, but it's not just you reading. There's other judges on the court. Yes. How many judges? There are nine of us. Okay. And the nine of us vote on everything. Some intermediate courts use panels of three. Uh-huh. Um, if they have a big court, we don't do that. We all nine, all get, involved. nine get involved in every case. Oh, That's wow. right. All right. And we have a large central staff that helps us um, tremendously. A lot of them have been there a long time. Mm-hmm. The court as a whole has about 80 employees. My goodness, okay, that yeah. is a big operation then. Mm-hmm. And you're in charge of that because you're the presiding judge. Right. Huh, that's uh, HR issues. We get them. <laughs> <laughs> we get them here too. We don't like them. You don't like them. Right, uh, but that wow. is part of my job, yeah. Sure, 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 wow. And you are elected. That's right. Um, elected for a six-year term. We have staggered elections, so three of us are up every six years. Okay, and how long have you been on the court? 29 years. This is an experienced judge. That's you've got a lot of experience. Yeah, I do. And you're up for election this year. This year. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sharon Keller, <laughs> Republican. Republican. All right. right. Now these are all uh, Texas judges are elected by parties, and uh, in some states they're appointed, in some states they're nonpartisan elections. But in Texas we have partisan elections, which frankly I like. Uh, it gives the voter at least some indication of where a judge might be um, philosophically, I suppose, and in states where it's a nonpartisan, first of all, nobody's always in judges anyway. I mean, we ask you, can you name me three judges? A few of you viewers might know a few names on the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, but you probably don't know anybody in the Texas Supreme Court. You probably don't know anybody in the Court of Criminal Appeals, one of these intermediate courts, a district court, a county court law. We had a Justice of the Peace on a couple episodes ago, Wade. And uh, she did a great job, but you probably maybe know her from that interview, but that's all you know. So having some partisanship, I think, uh, at least gives the voters a little bit more indication of where somebody might be at philosophically. I think so, too. Yeah, so you've got a primary and then you have a, there's a general election. Right. Okay. When is the Texas primary? March 5th. March 5th. Okay, keep that in mind, too. All All right. So back to the nine judges. It sounds like a little bit of uh, herding cats. (laughs) <laughs> to say the least. Um, these are all statewide elected officials. Right. I'm not the boss. I don't tell them what to do. Okay. We uh, Collegiality among the nine is very important. Yes. And right now we have the most collegial court I've ever served on. Well, that's a blessing. Yeah, I've served with about 25 different judges. And hmm. this group can get pretty um, agitated in conference when we're mm-hmm. talking about opinion. But when we leave the conference room, we go to lunch together. We have fun. We enjoy each other's company. And I feel very blessed to have these judges on the court. You are, because I, to let you, a little background on me, I was a clerk for the Court of Criminal Appeals back in 1978-79. And it wasn't very collegial. So a lot of stress between the judges. And um, the judge I worked for was a great judge. But there was always some tension between him and a colleague or other colleagues between each other. And... um, yeah, you got you, you, your offices are next to each other right. too. Last time I remember, and they so are. yeah, you got to get along. Good neighbors. Yeah. Nothing else. Go ahead. Oh, just the, I appreciate the collegiality of my colleagues, mm-hmm. and um, it's you know I try to set the tone, but it really takes all nine of us to do that, and um, we're fairly successful, especially compared to times in the past that I've been on the court. Good. Now let's talk about um, a lot of things to talk about. We're going to talk about next. The court makes a ruling. Um, either affirming, that means 
whatever the trial judge did is correct, and that means in your case that conviction is going to be upheld, or reversing, which means that it's going to go back and either be retried or that uh, person, the convicted criminal, because they're convicted by the time they get to you, is now exonerated. Those are kind of the two main things that are going to happen. But let's say they are affirmed. You say, yes, this, um, I'm sorry you lose. Can they then appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court? Not directly. Okay. They, 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 well, they can, but they don't, typically they don't. Okay. Yeah. You get you the final say from the bulk of the cases. Right, because people are just not going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's not an easy thing to do. Sure, it's expensive too, I would and imagine. It's expensive, and it's they're not likely to get heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. Because the U.S. Supreme Court, um, like some of the cases you mentioned, you have to take the death penalty cases, but you don't have to take anything else. The U.S. Supreme Court doesn't have to take any case. Right. So they can, and they get so many requests. Right. And we typically may have one or two cases out of Texas a year that the Supreme Court's interested in. Okay. Sometimes none. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Tell us about some of the more interesting cases you've had. We've had some very interesting cases. Okay. Um, I think one of the ones that sticks in my mind is the Rick Perry case. Rick Perry. That's Governor Rick Perry. Governor Rick Perry. I think I remember this case, yeah. but give me more because <laughs> most of you don't, so let's hear what you got. Okay. Well, he was indicted for um, more than one thing, but typically, I mean, but primarily for threatening to veto um, a legislative appropriation if the um, well, I don't want to get into the details too much, but he was he was indicted for threatening to veto a bill. Okay. And the case came to us, um, in, and we said that the constitutional provision that purported to allow him to, to be prosecuted for vetoing a bill was unconstitutional, mm -hmm. and it violated the separation of powers clause of the mm -hmm. Texas Constitution, and we ordered the prosecution dismissed. Mm -hmm. So that was that was um, an interesting case. It was high profile, of course, but it had very interesting legal issues. So too. Rick Perry, the governor, could have gone to jail for threatening to veto a, a bill, but right. he can veto bills. And that's if you don't do it the way he wants it, he can veto your bill, which happens all the time. That's right. It's part of his job. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can see that. But yeah. some disgruntled legislator or obviously got a DA to yeah. uh, to bring some charges against him. Right. Oh, that's interesting. I was thinking about the traffic stop one too. He had a traffic stop. He did. He did. And we're not going to go into what he said, but uh, bless his heart. Uh, right. Uh, he was upset about something. And um, anyway, we'll, we'll be memorable. on Rick. Yeah, it was very memorable. <laughs> right. Call me personally or send me an email. I'll tell you what happened. Well, we've had some other high-profile cases um, that, well, I've been around for a long time, You've so long people time. may not remember them all, but there was a 1998 case in Jasper out in East Texas. Oh, I remember this case. Right, where a number of men tied a black man to the back of the truck and dragged him to death. Right. We had that case, and I wrote the opinion affirming the death penalty conviction on one of them. And one, one of the was uh, actually executed. Yes, been I think John King, I think, was executed right. already. Right. Um, the Texas Seven cases come to us. What are those? Um, seven men escaped from prison. Okay. And they ended up killing a security guard up around Dallas somewhere and um, were sentenced to death. And those cases are, I mean, that was a horrible event and also very high profile. Mm -hmm. Some of the cases that I think are important are not necessarily high profile. One of them was a case called, um, I think it was Medellin, where um, a man was sentenced to death and he complained that his 
that the people who arrested him didn't notify, he was from Venezuela, didn't notify the Venezuelan consulate that he had been arrested, and there was, we were, they were supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. So he filed a lawsuit in the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Right. And they told us that we needed to reconsider our opinion that affirmed the conviction. And so this is an international court telling the Texas court what to do. Right. Hmm. And we said, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know. You don't get to tell us You don't what have to any do. jurisdiction over right. us. And once you open that door, then an international court could tell everybody what to do. Yeah. And, and we, uh, so we shut that down pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is, uh, we have a great book we show. We do some workshops around. And, and um, at the workshops, we'll talk about people who, and we have clients here that have moved from other states. And uh, they want to know if their estate plan from California or North Carolina is still valid in Texas. And we say, well, it is, but it's going to have some problems. We have this book called What Texans Need to Know About the Other 49 States. Oh. And when you open the book, all the pages are blank. <laughs> because we don't care what they do in those other states. This, by gosh, is Texas. That's great. That is great. It's yeah. such a great tool. It's always good for a laugh, but it uh -huh. says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. To it a does. certain extent. So yeah, we uh, we don't. I mean, no. There would be constitutional issues, I think, if you bent to that too. Oh right. And and I mean, I really appreciate the fact that our court, I think, was unanimous on that. So. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I I can see that, and I've been to the Hague and seen the court. Mm -hmm. But uh, nice place. Great. But <laughs> don't tell me what to do either. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, any other cases that come to mind? Well, there was one called Saldana. Um, I didn't write the opinion in Saldana, but it was a case where, again, it was a death penalty case, but not any more high profile than any other death penalty sure. case. But the attorney general at the time confessed error, and because now, of, what that means is the attorney general said he'd made a mistake. Said the state had made a mistake. Okay. Yep. And um, we ended up saying thanks for you know telling us that, but. You don't get to confess error, mm -hmm. and we're going to take it into consideration, but the defendant failed to object to something at trial. He doesn't get to raise it for the first time on appeal. Okay. So we, we again, kind of asserted the independence of the judiciary mm -hmm. in that case and uh, affirmed the conviction. Well, and that goes to an excellent point, Sharon. Again, this is Judge Sharon Keller, uh, presiding of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Get a good lawyer. You know, you really have to have a good lawyer. And it's, you know, your life may be at risk, certainly your freedom may be at risk, certainly your reputation may be at risk. And right. a lot of these things uh, may end up with probation. Um, and we had Sam Bassett on uh, a couple episodes ago. Sam's a renowned uh, criminal lawyer here in Austin. Mm -hmm. And uh, he went through the difference in parole and probation. And it's a good thing to watch again, folks, if you're interested in criminal stuff. but. Having a good lawyer, both at trial and then at appeal, mm -hmm. uh, because some lawyers, some of you really good trial lawyers, don't make good appellate lawyers. That's absolutely true. It's a, it's a totally different job. Yeah, it yeah. is. And writing it the way that you all get it and you understand it, and again can find out some of the nuances where maybe again you were convicted, uh, but maybe you shouldn't have been, or maybe there's an error, maybe they can get it reversed. And one of the benefits of getting it reversed is that, well, maybe you'll be tried and found guilty again, but maybe the state won't try you again. That happens. It does happen because mm -hmm. they're just tired of it. 
Yeah. They got other cases more important and we gave it our best shot, we're letting you go. So right. have a good lawyer and get a good appellate lawyer and hopefully this won't be personal to anybody here, but you know, holy cow. I mean, DWI looms. Uh, you know, you have one extra drink and you're caught on the freeway and you're pulled over and things like that. So get a good lawyer and do what they tell you to do. Well, I'll tell you one thing since we're on that subject. Um, when I first started practicing law, mm -hmm. judges appointed counsel yes. to indigent defendants however they wanted to. Okay. Um, in 2001, the legislature passed the Fair Defense Act and okay. said we want some kind of statewide oversight and we're going to help fund <coughs> indigent defense. So the first year, um, I've been the chairman since it was initiated in 2002. Okay. The first year, the legislature gave us seven million dollars and said you need to distribute this money to to the, the lawyers who are to the lawyers. We aren't going to tell you how to do it, and you have oversight. Every county needs a plan about okay. how they're going to appoint counsel. And that's uh, 254 Fifty-four. Wow. So we okay. quickly came up with a, kind of an interim plan for that first pot of money. Sure. But over the past 20, more than 20 years now, we have developed what never existed before in Texas, which is a statewide system of indigent defense. That is great because despite the fact you want to get a really good lawyer, maybe you can't afford a lawyer. Right. Sure. So now um, we not only distribute money to the counties, and we only pay for maybe 12 or 13 percent of the cost of indigent mm -hmm. defense. Mm -hmm. Counties mm -hmm. bear most of the burden. We have statewide oversight, and counties file their plans, and our our commission, the Texas Indigent Defense Commission, has two basic um, criteria, I guess, okay. for deciding how to do something. One is we want to reduce bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. So anytime we can help the counties do something we do, we try not to burden them too much. And the other is that we defer to local authorities when we can. Sure. Um, if a county is not living up to its obligations on appointing counsel, we don't punish them. We give them money. We give them help from our staff, and we try to get them in compliance. And I think that that's one reason that the commission has been successful over the years. It was not a popular idea among a lot of judges. I mentioned, sure, I would think so. But we really have, I mean, our, our, we do help counties. Right. And the local judges and local county commissioners come up with ideas that would never work if we forced them on people, but they've been highly successful. Mm. There's a, for instance, Regional Public Defender Office for Capital Cases. Mm -hmm. um, it started up in the panhandle with about 80 counties, putting because there weren't enough lawyers to do death penalty well, cases. Well, these are little bitty counties. I mean, they these are. are counties with maybe, Loving County's got 68 people. Right. I mean, some have maybe 4,000 people in the whole Durham County. Lots sure, I can of see small that. counties. Sure. And no lawyers to, to handle death penalty cases. So they came together, created an office, and they pay what's called murder insurance. If they have a capital, a death penalty case or a right. capital case, they get a lawyer. They the the county doesn't have to pay for it. I see a lawyer, an investigator, and various other things that, that would be a burden on the county. Sure, right. So that, that would never have worked if we said you're going to do this. Mm -hmm. But because it's voluntary, we have probably 185 counties participating now, right. and that's got national awards. Good. Good. Well, and again, um, many, many, many of these people who are going to be accused of capital murder um, are indigent yeah. and they need good representation and back to the taxpayer. If they don't get good representation, they're going to file a writ. 
They're going to end up in the Court of Criminal Appeals. They're going to ask to have the conviction overturned because they didn't have a good lawyer. Now we have to go back and retry the case, and this may be 10, 20 years after the original yeah. crime was committed, and the witnesses have to go through everything again. It's horrible. So having a good lawyer represent them and do a good job. Right. We want it in right the first time. Yeah, right. you do it right the first time, mm -hmm. and that saves money. It just saves a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartaches. So that's really, really smart. Mm -hmm. Very good. Anything else you want to share with us about your administrative duties? Our court is, um, as I said, a very ecclesial work, place to work, but there are really three parts of the court. Okay. There's the judges, mm -hmm. the central staff, which are a bunch of lawyers that help us, and then the clerk's office. And sometimes the three areas of the court don't necessarily know what the other ones are doing. Mm -hmm. So I try to participate and oversee the whole thing. And when I say collegial, it's not just the judges, it's our attorneys. Mm -hmm. If somebody's behind on their work, another attorney will come over and volunteer to pick up their cases. Mm. Same thing with judges. If somebody is getting behind for one reason or another, some of us will go say, let me write that opinion, I'll right. do it. Um, and the same thing with the clerk's office. There's been a time where we were severely understaffed in the clerk's office mm -hmm. because um, we were not getting as much money as we needed to offer uh, sure, employees. Yeah. And uh, one of the other judges and I were talking to the clerk one day, and she seemed pretty much at her wit's end. Both of us showed up the next morning at 8 o'clock without talking to each other and said, what can we do? Huh. So I learned how to run payroll. <laughs> I learned how to pay warrants. Is that right? It huh. is. That's cool. So it's it's a wonderful place to work. It really is. I just love the people there, and I feel very blessed to have that job. Well, we're glad to have you in office. And we're Thank glad you. that you've been there for 29, almost 30 years. And so let's go back over this because we're going to wrap up on this. This is the Court of Criminal Appeals. Again, an obscure court, but no more important court in this state than the Court of Criminal Appeals. Supreme Court, again, everybody's heard about that Supreme Court. Wonderful court, good judges. They don't do any criminal cases. You get them all. Okay, this is the meat grinder of the law right here. This is just where the rubber meets the road. If somebody gets sued and they end up in the Texas Supreme Court one way or another, they're going to have to pay some money in damages. They end up in your court. They can go to jail. They can have, be executed. This is serious stuff. So um, to know that it's there is important. To know that Judge Keller's there is really important. Uh, again, and we've got um, some deadlines coming up. We've got a primary coming up, and we have a general election coming up. So um, give her some thought. Give her some care. We didn't start off with this being a campaign commercial right. for you, but it kind of turned into one. So I love her. She's a great gal and a great judge. And so uh, give that some thought. All right. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of the Estate of the Union. And we will, like our next episode is going to be highlighting the charity. And the charity we're going to highlight is the Ronald McDonald House, which again is a kind of a familiar name, but what the heck do they do? So come back and watch that one too. So thanks for being a viewer. Thanks for being a listener. Thanks for uh, sharing this with any friends you've got. And this is Texas Trust Law with the Estate of the Union. Thanks again.